Welcome, everyone, and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. To ask a question, you may press on star followed by the number one. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this point. Now, I'll turn the meeting over to your host, Reese Gerholt. You may begin. Thank you very much, Rosie, and thank you, everyone, for joining today's press call to reflect on Trump's announcement two years ago um, and, and how that has impacted climate action in the U.S. and um, action around the world. Um, during today's call, our experts will touch on um, the current state of U.S. engagement on global climate efforts, where there's been progress domestically and elsewhere, and what more needs to be done by countries, businesses, states, and cities to address the climate crisis. Um, my name is Reese Gerholtz. I'm a Senior Communications Manager for the Climate Program at WRI. Um, for those of us that are less familiar with WRI, uh, we are a global research organization working at the nexus of the environment, human well-being, and economic development. We have nearly 1,000 staff working in eight global offices to address pressing issues like climate change. And today we have a stellar panel of experts to speak with you and answer your questions. They are U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, Mindy Luber, CEO and uh, President of Ceres, and Andrew Light, the Distinguished Fellow, uh, Senior Fellow at World Resources Institute. Uh, Andrew is also a former Senior Advisor on Climate Change for the U.S. State Department. And because of his busy schedule, um, Senator Murphy, um, I need to leave early, and so we wanted to accommodate that, so we will allow him to make his opening remarks and then we'll follow that by two quick questions before we go on to the remaining remarks and then on to our, our full Q&A session. So with that, Senator, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Reese. Thanks to uh, World Resources Institute for convening this call. I'm really pleased to be on the line with Mindy and uh, Andrew, and I'll stay on for as long as I can, but uh, I apologize I'm in the middle of a number of uh, events and visits here in Connecticut. Um, coincidentally, uh, I am just leaving uh, a roundtable event in New Haven, Connecticut, around coastal adaptation. Uh, we are obsessive uh, about uh, the pace of uh, sea level rise uh, and temperature rise in Connecticut because uh, most all of our economic and population assets are right along the water, uh, whether it be New Haven, Bridgeport, Stanford, uh, Interstate 95, Metro North Rail Line, all of those assets and people are within um, yards of, of uh, the water that is increasingly uh, acting as a menace uh, to Connecticut's big population centers. Uh, our estimate is that by 2080, we will lose 24,000 acres uh, of livable property in this state. Uh, and our legislature passed last year an aggressive uh, climate change bill uh, under the assumption that sea level would rise in Connecticut by two feet uh, by 2050. And so today we were getting together talking about how we can pool together the limited resources we have to try to protect our shoreline communities from uh, climate change. We wish that we were in a position uh, to simply focus on prevention, but especially given this administration's open and proud hostility uh, to uh, taking climate change seriously, um, we have to take measures to our shorelines in the case that we don't rise to the occasion 
this is an ignominious anniversary, two years since the president withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement, or at least announced uh, his intention to withdraw America from the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. Um, and um, it is a disaster for the United States to remove itself voluntarily from the international conversation uh, around uh, global warming pollutant reduction, even for two years. We don't have two years to sit on our hands. We don't have two years uh, to fail to lead. Every single month that goes by that we don't make the decisions necessary to save this planet from existential harm uh, is a month that we get closer to the point of no return. Um, that is apparent, it scares me to death, uh, that adults today may fail to rise to this opportunity such that it's too late for my kids to save my state um, from environmental devastation when they become adults. The nature of climate change is one in which once the trajectory gets baked into the atmosphere, it becomes hard and potentially impossible to reverse. So our focus now is on making sure that we build a political coalition in this country uh, such that no one ever gets elected president of the United States again who isn't 100% committed to the issue of climate. And in the short term, we're going to continue to build public and private sector partnerships like those that we have in Connecticut uh, to try to do our part at the local level uh, and to try to convince the private sector uh, to lead the way if, for the time being, the federal government won't. Uh, the good news is we have a House of Representatives now that's willing to stand up to the president uh, on climate. Uh, they passed an important piece of legislation that prohibits funding from being used uh, to withdraw the United States from the Paris uh, Agreement. We don't have the 60 votes necessary to pass that in the United States Senate today, but at least it paints for the American people uh, a picture of the big difference that exists right now on this issue in Washington. Lastly, um, you know, I remain deeply concerned about the administration's um, drive to populate this administration with climate deniers, uh, whether it be the EPA, the Department of Transportation, or Interior. Um, it just is heartbreaking to me that this administration is so, so hostile uh, to the issue of climate change that they feel necessary uh, to use as a litmus test for selection to top administration posts uh, the outright denial of science on this important issue. Uh, so we'll continue to fight uh, the president's uh, attacks on Paris uh, and attacks on climate science um, every single day of the week. We'll continue to seek out partners at the local and state level as well as in the private sector. Uh, and I'm really glad to be on this call today uh, to once again send out the call two years after the president's decision to withdraw from Paris um, about all of the steps that we need to take inside and outside government.
Thank you very much, Senator. And as I was saying earlier, we do want to open the floor up um, for questions just briefly here before we go on to, to the rest of the remarks to make sure we have enough time for um, Senator Murphy to answer your questions. So, Rosie, can you please explain how reporters can submit questions? Absolutely. Let us now begin the question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question, you may press on star followed by the number one. Please unmute your phone and record your name clearly when prompted. Your name is required to introduce your question. To cancel, you may press on star followed by the number two. Once again, star one for your questions and star two to cancel your request. Right. And as we wait for the first questions to come in, I wanted to let you guys know and make sure you're aware that we will have a recording of this call. Um, so for those of you that are joining late, um, we can get you that uh, recording later on today. Uh, we can always email us directly. We'll also be posted on debride.org. Uh, so, Opera, we have first question. Yes, we have our first question on to you. It's coming from the line of Nick. Nick, your line is now open. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this, Senator. I, you mentioned you know the divides on this issue in the Senate, but obviously in the past couple of months we've seen Republicans talking up climate change more, especially innovation. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how you've seen the conversation in the Senate change over the two years, if at all, um, since the Trump administration announced it would withdraw from Paris. I, I, there are a lot of Republicans who you know understand that climate denial will send their party into obsolescence, um, especially as the younger generation whose mind is completely made up about climate um, bec uh, become more frequent voters. Uh, so there are a number of Republicans who understand that, you know, that this is really bad policy and really bad politics for Republicans to follow Trump down this hard line on uh, on climate. Uh, unfortunately, none of those Republicans are named Mitch McConnell. Uh, and in the Senate, if Mitch McConnell uh, isn't, um, isn't on board, then nothing happens. Um, and so Senator McConnell has been wholly willing to, uh, to back up the president's assault on climate policy. And the handful of Republicans who are uncomfortable about it in the Senate are not yet willing to directly confront McConnell in order to force any of this legislation to the Senate floor. So, uh, you know, there are some you know, grassroots of optimism in the Senate, um, in the Senate Republican caucus on this issue. Um, but until Mitch McConnell, um, uh, you know, gets real pressure from his caucus, which he isn't today, uh, I, then nothing's going to change in the short run. Thanks. Great, thank you for the question. And Operator will take one more. Thank you. Our next question on queue is coming from the line of John. John, your line is now open. Well, yeah, thanks for having the call. Yeah, I was just uh, wondering, Senator, if there was anything, um, you're talking about a coalition in, in lieu of not having, um, not being part of the Paris Accord. We still do have a couple, a couple, um, about a year until we can formally pull out but you were talking about the coalition building. Are you talking about the states? Um, and, and you also mentioned the coalition building being part of making sure that another president who denies climate change is not in the Oval Office. I was just wondering if you could flush that out a little bit more. Is there something? Yeah. On? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. See, I mean, obviously, I just, you know, two two different issues here. I mean, one, you know, we've got 
we're building a policy coalition, uh, and um, you know that policy coalition involves you know private sector leaders that have taken um, pledges on climate as well as local and state governments that are stepping up and making investments in green building codes and regional greenhouse gas initiatives. You know, Connecticut, you know, for a long time has been you know part of the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which has been a you know, arousing uh, success, and we're in the process of modernizing our building codes as well. Um, and then there's the political coalition. You know, we uh, we do need to build. Um, well, and then let me say on the on the on the on the policy coalition, uh, you know, there's some big players at the federal at the federal level that are missing when it comes to that policy coalition. You know, the Chamber of Commerce has been the chief climate denial cheerleader. Uh, for most of the last decade, and yet many of their companies are climate leaders. So, you know, we need the Chamber of Commerce to, you know, follow where an increasing number of their members are heading, and that's towards more responsible climate policy. The political coalition is 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 is, is different, and you know, one of the reasons why you know, I don't know, this is not a political call, but yeah, that's the question. You know, one of the reasons why. You know, I'll be so focused on youth turnout as we head into 2020 is because those are climate voters. Um, and, you know, we had a surge of youth turnout in 2018. Not coincidentally, the House of Representatives is now pushing a um, climate agenda uh, instead of sitting on its hands. So, you know, that there, there are lots of parts of the coalition that will be needed to make sure that the next president is uh, fighting climate change. Um, rather than denying it, but youth turnout is going to be a big focus. Great, thanks. Thank you for that question. Um, I, I believe that was John from um, the Washington Examiner, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think it's actually a, a nice segue um, into our, um, our our next remarks by Mindy Luber, um, which can talk about action uh, happening at the state and, and business level in the U.S. So, Mindy, over to you, please. Great, thanks. Hope you could all hear me well. Uh, it is true we work with um, large investors and companies to integrate sustainability into everything they do, from the boardroom to the supply chain, and certainly their policy positions. And the, my overarching two comments, and I'll give some more examples, though, is as, as unfortunate as it was that our administration chose to suggest we are not in the Paris Accord, um, I would argue much of this country believes we are, perhaps not literally, they're not the ones to sign the piece of paper, but they are in, they are looking at getting to the goals of the Paris Agreement, and I think we are making progress despite an administration has tried to do otherwise. Um, there's no question, the message has to be, we have the enormous urgency of now. We've got to act, small steps at the moment aren't okay, it is all about large steps, it is about scope and scale of what we do to move the climate agenda, which is not waiting for us to take four years, eight years, or 12 years, or administrations to come to terms with it. Um, what we're seeing in terms of movement forward is movement forward with companies, with investors, and with cities and states. Uh, and it's not insignificant. It's quite significant. I don't need to remind everybody of what the problem is. We're seeing it not only every day, but the cities and towns that are being bombarded right now, who are literally underwater in parts of their towns, 
based on the flooding just this week that we're all seeing on our morning, afternoon, and evening news is colossal in racking up hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Scientists are making clear time is running out, and the key message that we have to have is we need to turn things around, not within the years to the end of what the Paris Agreement was about, which is being at a well below two-degree world by 2050, but we need to be turning that curve in the next 11 and a half to 12 years if we don't want to get to a point of irreparable damage. And not only is it the damage to the planet and to our families, as if that were not enough, the National Climate Assessment, our own U.S. government, said we're going to take 10% off the top of the U.S. economy alone if we don't act. And the IPCC report reminded us 11 years left to get to a point where we're on a trajectory of a 1.5 degree world. Or think about the governor of the Bank of England and the governor of the Bank of France who recently said carbon emissions have to decline by 45% from 2010 levels over the next decade if we're going to meet our goals. And they reminded us this requires enough of a massive reallocation of capital that if companies and industries fail to adjust to this new world, they might just fail to exist. So what are we looking at? We are looking at, we are working with 320 investors globally, assets under management over $33 trillion who are saying we need to get to the goals of Paris, and they are doing it. They have looked at the 100 or so largest emitters and prevailing upon them as owners of those companies to change. Shell just agreed to five new commitments. They're not perfect. They're a fossil fuel company, but they agreed to reduce their net carbon footprint by 20% by 2035 and 50% by 2050. Glencore, the largest coal exporter in the world, agreed to cap production of coal. Um, American Electric Power, largely at what point fossil fuel electric utility, now substantially different, set an unprecedented goal to cut carbon dioxide emissions 60% from 2000 levels by 2030 and 80% by 2050. These are the responses that our engagements between our investors and companies are seeing. Large companies are making clear commitments around reducing their footprint and what they do. And we're also seeing companies respond in many other ways. The day after the President of the United States said we are pulling out of the climate agreement, we had 1,200 cities, states, and businesses saying we are still in. Today, that coalition is 3,800 strong more than tripling the size, representing 155 million people across 50 states, totaling $9.5 trillion in GDP. These are leaders from academia, from cities, from towns, from businesses and companies saying we are still in and supporting us if in their own businesses, their own institutions, but also on policy. Think about this. Um, well, actually, let me just note a few more company changes. XL Energy, one of the world's largest utilities, set an ambitious new goal of 80% reduction carbon-free by 2030 and 100% by 2050. Yum Brands, the parent company of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut, committed to pursue science-based targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from its operations, its franchises, and supply chains. We are seeing that across the country and around the world. We are also seeing these companies joining us and standing up to policy change. And in brief, 
that change is taking place all across the country. Colorado is just about to pass a law to achieve 90% greenhouse gas reductions. We expect this week the governor to sign that into law. Nevada has passed a law. Minnesota, California has passed a groundbreaking law. All of these states are being deluged with not only citizens, environmentalists, but companies and investors saying it is urgent that we act now and they're acting now and we are seeing that change in states growing every day. The debate in the midterm elections included climate change being an important debating issue and it will come up again in the next round of elections. And at the federal level, just last week we had 80 companies working with WRI who is hosting this call and dozens of other partners bringing in eBay, Exelon, Gap, Levi's, Nike, Mars, Microsoft, PepsiCo, Tesla, amongst many others, who are prevailing upon federal leaders on Capitol Hill. And I will say we were in meeting with not only Democrats, but Democrats and Republicans alike, making the case that as much is going on, and it is substantial, we need federal policy, we need a price on carbon, and this is an issue that not only is about the future of our planet, our family, our kids, but our economy, uh, and the time to act is now. I don't expect a bill to pass in the next two years, but I do expect minds to be changed, businesses and investors to be prevailing upon uh, lawmakers from all parts of the country and all sides of the political fence to make it clear that acting on climate is an imperative now uh, and that we've got to move forward. So as much as pulling out of the climate agreement by our president was unfortunate, I will tell you we are seeing every day massive changes on part of the private sector, on the part of state and city regulators and governance bodies uh, to change, and we are moving forward in line with what Paris calls for. Great. Thank you very much. I think that's a great overview of kind of where things stand um, across the country. And I'll now pass the floor to our last speaker today, Andrew Light, Distinguished Senior Fellow at WRI. Thanks very much, Reese. Um, so I, I want to just go back two years to uh, President Trump's announcement in the Rose Garden of his intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Those of you who have been covering this story for a while will re recall that there was some um, talk at that time about a potential renegotiation, or as, as President Trump put it, put it, though I think no one had a clear idea of what he meant by that. Um, and in the two years since then, I'd say that you know, while we're not going to, we're not in the business of predictions, and wouldn't want to say that anything is absolutely certain. Um, I would argue that it's a near certainty now that the United States will move forward with its withdrawal from Paris uh, on schedule, submitting its instrument. Um, to the Secretary General of the United Nations in November, um, making our announcement that we will withdraw and then we will effectively be out after one year. Um, one of the big ironies of all this is that because of the day that uh, the date at which the Paris Agreement entered into force, the first day the United States will be able to get out of the agreement will be the day after the 2020 election. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that uh, while at the time, in the run-up to the President Trump's announcement, there was some uh, vigorous debate, uh, as far as we could tell, uh, in the in the cabinet and in the White House on the merits of withdrawing from Paris. No one is left in the cabinet, and no one, no senior officials are left in the White House who were really arguing for this. 
um, uh, with the exception of of Ivanka Trump, though um, it does not appear that she's been engaged on this issue since the decision was made. Um, the, um, there's also no sign that the, that the United States intends to create a new target under Paris, which was also something that was being discussed at the time, um, and that they will withdraw uh, according to the calendar. Now, what's been the biggest impact of this? I think that um, Senator Murphy and Mindy have, have picked up on some of this already. Um, but I would summarize it and say that the biggest impact has been that Americans have suffered. Um, this is hurting American security, um, and it will is will it is hurting American competitiveness overseas in what is now a, a multi-trillion-dollar market that's been created um, by the pledges that countries have put forward uh, under the Paris Agreement. Uh, America was once the undisputed global leader on aggressive climate action. Other countries knew that we were standing with them to tackle this global challenge and find a global solution to it. Um, countries uh, were f- certainly looking at the, the same kind of scenarios that the state of Connecticut is looking at in terms of sea level rise. We're already seeing massive um, internal migration, especially in small island states, uh, and uh, the United States was an ally uh, to, to these countries. Um, but now we're a pariah. We're the only country in the world um, who's not taking this seriously. Um, we're the only country in the world now intent on leaving the Paris Agreement and taking ourselves out of cooperative global solutions on this. Um, we have the only head of government who openly questions the basic science of climate change. Um, and I think because of this, other countries, especially those in the most vulnerable parts of the world, don't see the United States as an ally who will work with them to withstand climate impacts and take on the challenge of reducing the causes of climate change. And that means we've lost influence in these countries. And if you look at some of the most, um, some of the parts of the world where the United States has critical security um, interests uh, because of uh, terrorism, because of unstable economies, those are also, in many cases, places that are uniquely susceptible or highly susceptible to climate challenges and climate change, and the United States is just simply not they're helping. Um, what this means is that other countries will step in and they will uh, fill this gap. Um, most notably, China has done the most of this already. We also see aggressive action from the EU. I expect, too, that now that Prime Minister Modi has secured his re-election bid, he will go back to championing uh, climate change as a core part of, of, his, uh, of his agenda. Um, and we have seen progress in these countries as well. One of the refrains that we sometimes unfortunately still hear from members of Congress is that um, the United States uh, fulfilling its pledges under Paris wouldn't matter because the agreement doesn't really require other countries to to do anything, and that's just simply not true. Um, The biggest emitters uh, in the emerging economies, including China and India, Indonesia, all, all have very ambitious pledges under the Paris Agreement, and it looks like they are on track to meeting them. To just give you one example, from 2000 to 2014, China's carbon intensity declined 28.6%, and India's dropped 30.9%, and the United States, during the same period, our carbon intensity dropped 25%. Um, Both China and India remain on track to meet their contributions to the Paris Agreement um, with the help of rolling out uh, a, a huge emissions trading system in China, and with India having the largest single sector uh, uh, renewable energy targets in the world with 100 gigawatts of installed solar capacity planned by 2023 and making very good 
uh, very good progress on them. Um, I, I would argue that uh, that the, we can also see other signs where the United States is intent to slow down uh, and to cast doubt uh, on the international consensus on climate change. We saw that, for example, um, at the last conference of the parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which met last fall or last uh, November in Katowice, Poland, where the United States um, came out strongly refusing to acknowledge or the, the technical language was welcome the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Changes um, 1.5 report, report that they issued last fall on the possibility of whether or not we could stabilize uh, a temperature increase caused by humans at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is something that was called for, again, by the most vulnerable countries um, to climate change now, especially small island states and least developed countries, and also highlighted the difference between a world where we were able to stabilize at 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels rather than uh, 2 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels and show uh, dramatic differences in the different kinds of world this is. The United States um, refused, to refused to welcome that report. Um, some compromise language was eventually found, but we're just seeing this again and again, a kind of a, uh, a reaction by the White House uh, against including any of this language. There was uh, also a resolution that had been put forward at the UN Environment Assembly just a couple months ago, uh, um, and um, it, it was it was a, a resolution about doing a study on uh, where we are now with respect to solar radiation management and carbon capture and sequestration uh, or, or negative emissions technologies, so um, so-called geoengineering solutions. The topic of it doesn't really matter. What was important is that the United States reportedly would not sign on to even doing a study because other parties wanted to acknowledge climate science in the chapeau language um, for that resolution. Um, we are seeing continued U.S. Uh, resistance to consensus documents by leaders on climate change. Most recently, Secretary Pompeo um, refused to allow consensus language on climate change to be included in a statement uh, on the Arctic Council, one of the most critical and fastest changing parts of the world where climate change is an absolutely essential priority. And we've seen a preview, I think, of where we're going to be winding up in August with the G7, with uh, G7 environment ministers communique uh, just recently released where um, the other six parties um, champion Paris, champion action on climate change, and there's a separate paragraph just for the United States exempting it themselves um, out from that language. So I think that that's uh, where we're going to continue, um, and I think that the questions that will remain is really what is the kind of the long-term damage that will be done to the United States even if we do re-enter the Paris Agreement at some point um, um, from 2021 forward, given the positions that the United States has been putting itself in uh, recently. Um, in terms of other things looking forward, I'll only mention one thing very quickly. Um, one of the other big agreements that we achieved uh, just after um, negotiating the Paris Agreement in the fall of 2016, um, and this is something I know uh, Senator Murphy worked very hard on, was to get an agreement on uh, on hydrofluorocarbons to phase down hydrofluorocarbons, which are um, primarily a substitute for chlorofluorocarbons and hydrochlorofluorocarbons, which were all um, phased down and phased out by the Montreal Protocol. We were able to amend the Montreal Protocol 
and get and and get uh, and be able to use the instruments of the protocol to get an agreement to phase down HFCs, which could avoid half degree of warming by the end of the century. Very very important, given that humans have already warmed the planet one degree Celsius over pre-industrial levels. Um, last summer, um, 13 of Senator Murphy's Republican colleagues sent a letter to the White House asking um, that this amendment, the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, be sent to the Senate for, um, for ratification, and the Trump White House has refused so far uh, to move that forward, um, apparently only because it has something to do uh, with climate change, uh, even though this is probably one of the um, – um, few remaining international agreements uh, where there is very strong bipartisan uh, consensus on this uh, in Congress to move forward with it. Um, um, we hope, and uh, the U.S. industry is of one voice on this, wanting to move forward um, with ratification um, and with passing uh, legislation um, that would allow the United States to implement the Kigali Amendment. We hope that at some point this will be reconsidered and hopefully a full court press with some of the uh, industries that many works with will um, eventually get us the Kigali Amendment submitted, and hopefully that will be at least one uh, agreement that the United States can join the rest of the world on. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. I really appreciate um, all of your remarks, as well as those by the Senator and, and Mindy Luber. Um, I understand the Senator had to leave uh, a little early, so we'll, we'll have to go on to Q&A um, with our remaining speakers. Um, and we also have a couple other um, experts in the room here. Um, Kevin Kennedy, a senior fellow with the U.S. Climate Initiative, and David Waskow, uh, International Climate Director at WRI, um, in, in case it makes sense for them to answer one of these questions or not. Um, but, uh, operator, if you would, please uh, reiterate how people can ask questions, and we'll try to answer as many as possible over the next you know, few minutes. Uh, we'll try to keep our responses short so we can have as, much, as many um, responses uh, back to you as possible uh, before the 12 o'clock hour. Sure thing. Once again, for any of your questions, you may press and star followed by the number one. Please record your name clearly when prompted. To cancel, you may press and star followed by the number two. Our question on queue is coming from the line of Bernard Potter from Target Siding. Bernard, your line is now open. Oh, thanks, and thanks for having this uh, call in here. Um, Actually, I would be interested, uh, Andrew, you talked about long-term damage that's being done, and um, I was wondering, talking about uh, all the action that has been taken in the states by sub-federal level, how much of this damage in the U.S. actually can be prevented, and how much will there be uh, with the, this federal policy in place? Well, uh, thanks, Bernard, for the question. I, I think that the um, this is certainly our, our, our biggest uh, our biggest uh, most important effort that will uh, hopefully moderate some of the damage that I frankly I think the United States is doing to itself right now by taking this outlying position on the Paris Agreement and on really all international cooperation on climate change, even acknowledging uh, the reality of climate change. So it, we have done a, um, as you know, we have uh, those of us involved in the various uh, organizations that have been um, stood up in the last few, uh, two years, uh, the U.S. Climate Alliance, uh, the America's Pledge effort, which the WRI has been part of to uh, count all of these um, uh, uh, and assess um, all of these different efforts by non-federal actors in the United States and then also come up with a solution set of how they could 
increase and come closer to collectively meeting the U.S. pledge under Paris, current U.S. pledge under Paris by 2025, um, and then also the we are still in um, uh, um, um, coalition of non-federal actors. I think that we've done a very dedicated job of trying to make sure the rest of the world is aware of this, that these are real numbers, that these are real policies and actions. And I think we've done a good job of alerting um, the rest of the world to that. So that certainly does help um, that uh, the rest of the world knows that more than half of the U.S. economy and half of the U.S. population is living in some jurisdiction which is dedicated to doing something on Paris. But at the end of the day, these actors don't uh, don't sit down and negotiate um, in the framework convention. Um, they will not be the entities that will make, uh, you know, the Kigali Amendment, uh, the United States um, um, ratify or join the Kigali Amendment. Uh, and so I think that in terms of longer-term damage, uh, I am concerned that um, that we are not really, I believe, going to be able to just, let's just imagine a scenario where you have either this president or another president in 2021 who wants to re-engage on climate change internationally. I don't believe we can just pick up where we left off um, at the end of the Obama administration in terms of global leadership there. And that is what worries me. I think that we will see some parties will be understandably skeptical um, of the United States uh, re-entry uh, into this. And I think that um, because of it, um, what we are going to have to do is really deploy and make good use of all of these um, business leaders and mayors and governors who have been uh, working in concert to try to meet the U.S. pledge under Paris, and we need to get them, the, if the United States reengages, we need to reengage with those actors rather than instead of them to really build out um, the good work that they have done. And I think the same thing would be true domestically with respect to how we would create um, an overall climate plan that was um, lifting up and built uh, um, with these uh, actions that all these actors have been doing rather than trying to replace them. Uh, WRI, we, uh, we call that climate federalism, um, um, building on all of that rather than uh, really substituting it, which is, I think, unfortunately, how we've seen um, uh, some of this evolve in the past. Look, in the end, um, as much we must have a global agreement, since this is a global problem, what happens in Boston impacts Rio de Janeiro, and what happens in Beijing impacts Washington, D.C. So we've got to reach that global agreement. And I would say the other imperative is we've got to have a federal policy. Look, as many, uh, I could tell you about 33 trillion dollars in investments and 340 investors and hundreds of companies. But in the end, we need the entire market. We need a federal policy. We need a price on carbon if we're going to move at the scale and pace that we need. You need a level playing field where everybody is regulated and required to do the same thing so nobody gets a advantage or disadvantage competitively. And I think that's what we need to be moving towards. There's no doubt we're making progress at the city-state level and in the private sector, but in the end, we're going to need a federal policy and, of course, as Andrew just said, a global agreement that binds us all together. Great. Thank you both. And again, if you have questions, please press um, star one. We'll go on to the next question, please. Thank you. Our next question on to you is coming from the line of Timothy Gardner from the Reuters. Timothy, your line is now open. Uh, thank you. Um, 
So, uh, Andrew talked about um, the U.S. Uh, um, maybe losing global leadership uh, even after the administration uh, on climate. Um, I was wondering if you know of any examples where the administration could actually um, sort of suffer blowback from other countries um, that are upset with the the U.S. stance, and, you know, especially after Arctic Council. Um, are there any sort of related um, uh, sectors like industry or, or even trade negotiations where this stance may be counterproductive to items the U.S. wants on other issues? Yeah, I th thank you, Tim, for the question. Um, I think I think that we, uh, you know, we are seeing uh, throughout a deep level of frustration uh, on this. Um, I would argue. I mean, there was even a moment that uh, in, in the in the when the United States first uh, pushed back on just simply welcoming the IPCC 1.5 report at the last uh, UN climate summit in Poland um, last November. Um, that I believe that the first time that came up was, you know, it's a two-week meeting, and so it came up, um, I, I think it was like the Saturday, uh, in Saturday negotiating section in a very technical uh, negotiating session, and, a, and it was, you know, first a, a position that was put um, forward, not even by the, the head of the U.S. delegation um, at that meeting. And, and I, I would argue that we saw just within the confines there, I mean, there was a just a slowing almost to a stop of of the uh, of those negotiations which were really critical because it was one of the most complicated negotiations in the you know 30 year history of this process because there were so many details that needed to be hammered out um, that were originally put in their part by the Paris agreement I think you saw calls from more countries saying that they wanted to um, potentially move towards uh, you know, older positions that would have had very different um, kinds of responsibilities for countries based on their 1992 development status, um, things that, uh, you know, the last four U.S. administrations have been trying to move beyond, and we successfully moved beyond in terms of the architecture of Paris. Um, and then I think that um, what we're seeing is, you know, I don't, I can't give you an example right now in terms of trade negotiations um, uh, where, uh, we're seeing blowback from Paris, um, but I think that uh, we definitely um, are getting to a point now where, um, you know, the, the, the language that the United States would like to see in the G20 and the G7 and other parts of the text, there's just open hostility to the United States based on having to accommodate them um, on this. But I think more importantly, it's sort of on the ground. Um, and it is that countries now are turning to China instead of the United States in terms of um, who they are wanting to contract with to help them to achieve their infrastructure needs, their development needs again and again. And China's stepping up and offering this kind of assistance to countries where the United States just is no longer seen as the, uh, you know, your first call in terms of helping to try to achieve your development needs. Thank you. You know, uh, of all of the companies we work with, most of whom are global, when they're regulated around the world by a certain set of standards and less so in the United States, 
even they who may not be explicitly part of the debate on a daily level are starting to realize that having more global standards rather than a set of rules in the United States and a set of rules everywhere else um, is becoming damaging to those companies. They're, you know, if you're an uh, auto manufacturing company and creating electric vehicles, but they're all being created by European companies and being having a far higher purchase rate, um, we're seeing commerce being negatively impacted overall by not being part of this global deal. You know, I'll say two minutes ago or five minutes ago at the ExxonMobil um, annual meeting, their shareholder meeting, 40% of their shareholders voted to separate their board chair um, and their CEO. And the basic argument that was made at the annual meeting as well as leading up to the annual meeting was the board was not doing its job in reviewing and at analyzing the risk from climate as it related to the company. So these multinational companies are seeing different kinds of responses. Their shareholders are prevailing. Uh, they're global companies, and in the end, they're going to have to have a more standardization that really only the Paris Accord can provide. Thank you. Next question, please. Thank you. Our next question on to you is coming from the line of Randy Shostak from EO. Randy, your line is now open. Uh, yes, hi. Thanks for doing this. Uh, the speakers uh, noted the need for federal legislation on climate change, including price on, putting a price on carbon. Um, the U.S. has come close before with federal climate change legislation that ultimately failed 10 years ago, the Waxman-Markey American Clean Energy and Security Act. Given the failure of Waxman-Markey, what is your confidence level and why for any federal climate legislation either now or even after the next election with challenges from strong vested interests and big money opposition? You know, 10 years ago is a long time. It's a lifetime in politics, as we know. And I would argue the days of Waxman-Markey and where we were overall in terms of knowledge, in terms of education, in terms of support, from city, states, and the private sector are radically different. So uh, I may not be suggesting that we're going to pass a major price on carbon in the next two years. I do think over the next four years we've got a reasonable shot, and I think we've got that shot. We saw just a microcosm last week with 80 of the world's largest companies joining us on the Hill, talking to R's, to D's, to people of all backgrounds from all over the country. Um, the support is growing, and it is a very different time. We will see climate be a being a debating point uh, in this presidential election. It was in the midterms around governors and U.S. senators um, or congressional races. It is radically different. We did not have hundreds of multinational companies who are a great risk and threat and need to act on it. We did not have hundreds of investors and bankers and financial leaders who realize what the risk is if they don't act. Um, I believe it's a new world, and a comparison to 10 years ago is just that. But 10 years ago is a long time as it relates to this debate. Uh, yes, I, I agree with all that. I, I guess I would also say that um, um, I think that what we have learned in the last two years is that you know we can we can build. It is possible to build in the aggregate something that is a reasonable substitute um, for at least some parts of federal policy. I completely agree with something Mindy said earlier, is that eventually for us to hit our targets where we need to be, let's take the Obama administration's um, indicative target of 
Uh, it wasn't really a formal target, but it was it was it was something that a uh, number that was used often in the administration and was referred to in the mid-century strategy that was released um, just actually after the last federal election. Um, uh, that we want to get to at least a reduction in our emissions of 80% by 2050. If we're going to be moving to points along the way in 2030, 35, 2040 that are going to allow for that kind of a deeper level of decarbonization, then yes, we're going to have to have uh, national policy. Um, but in the interim, um, there is a lot that we can do um, by expanding these state-level programs. So I think that we're going to be seeing um, direct an expansion of, of more pricing mechanisms uh, um, and more, more um, with more states uh, joining some of the coalitions that have already been created uh, in the northeastern states, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Um, we'll, I, I expect we'll see more states looking at linking or joining or um, um, somehow uh, collaborating with California uh, with their system, and I do think that we can sort of build those out um, in the Second America's Pledge report that WRI did, um, um, Fulfilling America's Pledge, which was just released last fall at the uh, Global Climate Action Summit in uh, San Francisco um, that Governor Brown um, hosted, um, we had a, we look at a series of different policies that the existing states, and this was before the midterm elections, and the picture is even stronger since then with several more governors um, stepping up and, and, and stepping up and joining uh, the, the governor's level alliance on this, the U.S. Climate uh, Alliance. But in that report, we looked at 10 specific measures that could be done that could uh, pull down U.S. emissions even further um, than we, we expect they will be in 2025 with current levels of state action. Um, uh, our current projections, you were going to get to basically a 17% reduction by 2025 with current levels of non-federal action, uh, and that um, those could be pulled down even further. And then we outline an even broader array of policies that could move those down, which we think are politically feasible. Um, these aren't just, you know, uh, numbers that sort of come out of just a, a fantasy of imagining a bunch of action that isn't possible, but real reasonable numbers of scaling up current levels of action or doing more. And so I think that even though it might be some time before we actually get a Congress that's willing to pass um, legislation that looks something like Waxman-Markey or some other kind of pricing mechanism like a carbon tax or something, I do believe that we will be seeing a, an expansion of the map of pricing mechanisms um, of parts of the economy, the U.S. economy overall, that are covered by some kind of pricing mechanism, either directly or indirectly. Great. Thank you, Andrew. I think we're getting closer to the end of the call here, um, but if you um, do have any last-minute questions, please press star one. I think we'll take one more question and kind of see where we go from there. Thank you. Our last question on to is coming from the line of John Siliano for Washington Examiner. John, your line is now open. Oh, hi. Um, yeah, thanks for the extended call. Um, I just wanted to see if you had any response. I guess this is mainly for Andrew, but if, Mindy, if you want to chime in, it would be appreciated. Uh, you know, the cost-benefit analysis the EPA says is going to be revising, um, and there's also been in the news recently, as of yesterday, um, uh, trying to put in place limitations on the climate science um, right. at, at various agencies. Where, where do you think that goes? And there's also, you know, the continuing uh, discussion at the NSC and the White House on uh, creating this so-called skeptics panel. Mm -hmm. Have you heard anything about that? Is there, I mean, beyond, 
beyond the, the Paris withdrawal, the, there seems to be an effort in, uh, in the run-up to the presidential elections to start really getting into the rules and how science is done at the agencies. What, what's, what's, the, what's the problem there? I mean, of course, you know, beyond the obvious, but do you see that as potentially being harder to, um, to readjust, uh, you know, based on the, the results of the next election? Sure. Uh, thanks, John. I, 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 so I don't know many, any more details than what I, I guess all of us read in the New York Times on, on Monday on the science story. Um, I, I have been hearing uh, about these efforts for some months now. Um, let me just say one thing about where I, uh, what I think all this comes from. My, my view on this is that, you know, the, the, the administration's uh, plan to bury the last U.S. national climate assessment, the fourth national climate assessment, um, by releasing it on Black Friday, the day after the Thanksgiving, just completely backfired. Uh, and um, it was, I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't have the statistics in front of me. I, I think that it's very safe to say that it was one of the biggest uh, climate news days in U.S. American history, um, certainly um, uh, as much coverage as we saw um, the, on the anniversary that this call is about, the, the June 1st um, announcement by, the pres by President Trump that he was pulling out of Paris. Um, and, and I think that, that this, this really... Uh, you know, um, what we're seeing in this sort of aversion to do anything that endorses uh, other um, inter international reports that U.S. scientists have contributed to, like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 1.5 report, seeing that sort of, you know, the position the U.S. took with that in Poland, and then uh, similar stance that they took at the UN Environment Assembly meeting that I mentioned earlier, um, I think that this is really kind of a reverberation from um, being stung so badly by the release of this of the National Climate Assessment, which completely, you know, was at odds with the all of the stated positions by this administration on everything from the reality of the science to the need to respond to it. Um, I, 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 those are the kinds of things that I think that we can. Um, I think that we can imagine um, being able to reverse in pretty quickly uh, if you get a, a change in government or a change in this government's attitude uh, in 2021. Um, uh, um, and I think that uh, we've, we know, for example, that um, there's a, a lot of resistance in many of the agencies um, to this sort of denialist panel that uh, William Happer has proposed in the National Security Council. Um, very strong, uh, reportedly very strong resistance to this idea from the Department of Defense. Uh, um, the uh, combined intelligence agencies, I've heard the Department of State also took a position against this. Um, um, whether that will prevent this panel from moving forward, I don't know. It sounded from the time story like the president still likes the idea. Um, so, I, But I think just the fact that so many agencies um, um, not only were against the idea of putting forward that panel, but also did not go through with the exercise of actually nominating people to serve on that panel means that um, that this effort, uh, reversing this effort, in some cases, some of the biggest, most important agencies will be pretty easy because they will not have gone along with it. That said, I think real damage can be done here, especially in ter if we take, um, you know, the uh, U.S. Geological Survey position, which is um, not to use any modeling, climate modeling beyond um, 
2040 to inform positions. Um, this can mean that an enormous amount of money is going to be wasted um, that will have to be reversed. If we are uh, implementing policies, say, in terms of you know the kind of planning that we're doing in the Department of the Interior, um, uh, um, you know, with respect to how we manage our public lands, if we're only looking at um, um, in, in looking at information out to 2040, um, then we are eventually going to have to reverse a lot of this, and that some real damage can be done between now and then. Um, so, so my my sense of things on this is that uh, is that is is that we will have to uh, move very very quickly. I think that is, that is, that is a first hundred days priority if there is a new administration to be reversing all of this, uh, all of this, and getting us back into um, uh, not only uh, these kinds of policies about the science, but I would argue um, reestablishing um, our the, our uh, understanding of the social cost of carbon as well, and using that to inform um, federal policy. You know, just one final point on that, and as a former regulator in the Clinton administration, um, we certainly looked at all of these regulations. I mean, the first thing to say is they will be litigated. So many of the things that are being considered, changes in regulation and so on, I do think will be held up in court for the next two years and hopefully not move forward. That, that's not to say that the pernicious impact of changing cost-benefit analysis or the NEPA standard or how you look at science uh, isn't extremely dangerous, but I think some of that can be held back. And in the end, you know, gravity is gravity. You drop something, it falls to the ground. Changing science, which this administration is trying to do, which of course is so highly um, beyond the pale of anything legitimate, in the end will be a hard thing to do when the science is accepted around the world, trying to change science in one unique country where perhaps they think the science is different. So, but the bottom line is I do think we've got the course of litigation to hold on to some of the very important, profoundly well-thought-out regulations that have put into place without losing them and having to start over completely in two years. Thanks for all of that. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Mindy Luber, um, Andrew Light, and for all the journals who joined us today, um, the Senator as well, you know, he stopped off the call a little bit earlier. Um, and this reminder, we do have a recording of this call. We will have a, report, a recording of this call on wri.org slash news in the advisory. Um, but thank you very much for joining and look forward to being in touch with you at a later date. All right. Take care, everyone. That concludes today's conference. Thank you all for joining. You may now disconnect.